Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Anthony Stankard. Anthony is the Managing Director of Reside Manchester, an independent estate agency in Manchester's city centre. Anthony, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today pleasure thank you it's a real pleasure having you on the air with us Anthony as well now um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole so if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation what does that word mean to you and how does it resonate leader well I suppose in current climate that that word's become uh, all-encompassing because you know what our normal day today I led a team I suppose you would say of, of estate agents in a business and driving that towards profitability and customer service, what have you. But then things like COVID-19 arrive and suddenly all those big decisions you need to make, you know, land on your desk and it's, it's that's the time to step up and make what have been, you know, very difficult, very hard and personal decisions. But at the end of the day, that, that, that's my role as the leader, the managing director of a company to make sure the company survives through a, a time that, of absolute turmoil and, and something that we didn't know and still probably don't know exactly how long it's going to last for. Yeah, there's been an awful amount of pressure um, on leaders at the moment, um, hasn't there, to respond to the uh, the COVID-19 crisis and what is ultimately unprecedented territory. And we've seen that not just within businesses, but also in um, governments um, as well. Um, for somebody working within your line of work, um, Anthony, how do you feel that you've adapted to this? Because I can imagine it's been an incredible challenge, not just for yourself as a leader in bringing a great deal of responsibility, but also for employees, staff members as well. I mean, that's also something to consider. Yeah, absolutely. If you think of our industry, residential estate agency, our whole, you know, I've spent 25 years in this business, and that time has been spent doing what I love, which is eating the public. That's what we do all day, every day. We go into strangers' houses, we meet developers, we meet builders, surveyors, contractors, and we engage with them in close proximity, verbally, and and you know, physically go into properties and building sites, what have you. Then all of a sudden, you know, we, we couldn't do that at the end of March, and it took a lot of sitting down and thinking, and how, how do you run an estate agency when you can't? let people into an office and you can't go and meet them. So, yeah, we had to make some very alien decisions to an industry that is very touchy-feely and you know, see how we operated going forward. So it was a huge learning curve at the at the end of March. And, and yeah, I think one of the things that we did learn, as not just not as a state, but as human beings, is we are they're actually very adaptable and we, we will find a way. And, and, and I think we did and we have found a way. And that sounds um, incredibly um, encouraging. And um, I can imagine that it's come with um, the pressure of making some not necessarily difficult decisions, um, of course, but also having some quite tricky conversations with certain people um, as well. Because when there's so much uncertainty during a time like this, there'll be people looking to business leaders for reassurance and just keeping the communication channels open when it's not necessarily clear what the future holds. It can be quite difficult providing that content and that can bring its own pressures as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, very early on, um, mid to end of March, you know, we had conversations with, uh, I got a team, well, I had a team of 15 people. And at, at 
the end of March, we made four of those people redundant. Now, that's never an easy decision to make because working in one office, you know these people well, they become friends. And I knew from experience of 2008, I think what, what, what we learned back then was invaluable now because I was in the same industry doing the same thing. And if you acted quickly and decisively, you got through the financial crisis, and, and, and we did. We did. You know, we came out the other side, and we came out a lot stronger than when we went in. So one of the first things I said to my co-director on the oh, third week in March was, we need to act now, and we need, we need to make some tough calls. And, and we decided to lose four people there and then. The team came down to 11. And then shortly after, we furloughed five, and the remainder worked from home. Now, the strategy on that was to kill the cost as quickly as we could and know how to survive. And and I'm one of those, you know, I don't like to make things complicated. It, mm. The situation seems very clear to me and very, very easy. The cost going out, I know it sounds easy when you say now, but the cost must be less than the, the money coming in. We know from experience that, you know, the sales market was going to die very, very quickly. The banks started to shut down products. Uh, surveyors couldn't go out and, and see things, and solicitors were starting to be further. So, you know, we knew that sales transactions would dry up very quickly, and they, that there was no way that they could recover. And that happened. You know, we got through into the start of April, I suppose, with transactions still completing, and then that just around to the completion of the halt. It's starting to come back now because banks have reopened product, uh, loan to values are, are getting better, surveyors are back doing surveys, and the machine is gradually coming back and confidence is slowly returning. However, on the, the lessons of the property management side, we knew that, that that money needed to keep coming in. Tenants needed to keep paying the rent. If they paid the rent, we'd receive our management income. And that, that was the figure that we knew should come in from get to 100% of rent being collected. And therefore, we cut our cost accordingly, but costs must reflect the income we know we will make because we don't know whether this will be one month, two months, three months, or six months. So those decisions were made very, very early. They were made in the third week of March. I think we got it right because from the 18th of May, we unfurloughed all of the team and brought mm -hmm. the rest into the office on a, on a two-team basis, an A-team and a B-team. And that decision again was made because I thought my team can earn more money for all the company and themselves being at work rather than what we could save on the government's furlough scheme. And we are now towards the end of our fourth week. And that's definitely been the case. The the rental market has come through and... and it's certainly not back at the levels it was this time last summer, but it's, it's not bad. And the sales market is still absolutely, completely dead. It's very, very quiet out there. But um, the rental, the, the property management side of the business, it's, you know, it's getting back to some sort of, you said, new normal. And what do you think the new normal is going to sort of look like for yourselves in your industry? Are you satisfied that... Um, you are fully aware of what's expected of you just because there's been a lot of debate about how clear government guidelines are with regards to COVID secure premises, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think because we were in that first phase of people going back to work, then they did issue, the, the gov.uk did issue very clear guidelines on how we operate. So, you know, I must give them their due on that. Social distancing as an office, we were fortunate enough to have a reasonable side office, office. So our desks were already sort of two metres apart. Um, so we removed, removed where we had four desks on the floor, we took one out and it became three. So they were, they were comfortably socially distanced. And on viewings, they issued guidelines on how my team attended viewings with the public. What we have learned is the public um, and ourselves adapted to the virtual viewing quite quickly. So we took, a, we took a decision early on, and it was a bit of a learning curve. It probably took us about three weeks to, to get this right and, 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 and get the procedure in place that worked. And that was that we would only market properties that were empty. As an estate agent, we're, we're probably in a fortunate position to do that because we work in the city centre. I'm just the city centre. Most of our product is vacant, new build, what have you. We don't cover suburbia where you know, a, a normal family currently living situ. So we were in quite a fortunate position. But what we did learn is if the property was vacant, it had had its deep clean and we produced a high quality video, then tenants still needed to move. People had given notice, people had been served notice. So they were they were working through that two month period where they would in fact be homeless because they'd handed in their notice. So and people were still moving around. So those people needed somewhere to live. And provided you did those three things, an empty property with a deep clean and a quality video, they were happy to reserve them. So we continue to do that. And what we've learned, even since we've opened the office, is the general public are still quite happy to almost do the virtual viewing as their first appointment. And then if they pretty much are deciding to take the property, they will do a physical viewing. And some of them still don't even do the physical viewing. So the world has changed very, very quickly. And we are not seeing anywhere near the amount of um, applicants that we would traditionally have seen. So to give you some, I was looking at some figures this morning, we, and this time last year and through the course of the last 12 months, what I call our, our strike ratio, i.e. how many viewings we have to conduct to do a deal, has over the past few years been around one in seven. So for every seven appointments we'll do, we'll do a deal, whether that be a sale or a rental. I look back over the last four weeks since we reopened the office, and that has become a ratio of one in two. So every second person we're seeing, they're taking the unit. So it seems people are making that decision at home, online, virtually with their partner, what have you, and then almost going to the property to seal the deal. So our um, productivity has actually increased you know, astronomically because a lot of the work's been doing at home by WhatsApp and, and those sort of mediums that we, we never used before. So it has changed dramatically. And I think that I don't see why that will change certainly the the next six months. Human beings have a nature, I think, forgetting. So, you know, in, in 12 months' time, it might go back to the way it was. But certainly the online presence seems to have been, the virtual, sorry, presence seems to be a staple now of our of our lives and our 
high street premises, we don't have people coming in anymore. They just do not want to come and sit in an office that they don't know, even though it's a controlled COVID secure environment. You know, there's no need for them to be there. They, they will meet us at a property once they've almost made the decision to take the property, go in on their own and have a look round. We'll wait for them outside. They'll come and I'll say one in two people are, are making that decision straight after that appointment. And there are going to be some very interesting and difficult decisions still to be made, um, I think, even though we're starting to see things opening up again, uh, for sure, Anthony. And uh, if we think about what that long-term future now holds for yourself and for Reside Manchester specifically, over the next 12 to 18 months, as we do begin to adapt to the new normal, what do you envision for the business and what do you really hope to achieve as we hopefully emerge from COVID and really look to the future? I genuinely think we, we're in a time now of... Um you know, hunkering down and making sure that, for example, there's a second wave or, or that thing comes back next winter, that we're not in the you know, panic scenario that we were in in March, taking three weeks to make sure that everything was in place. Now, I think we've got to just make sure that those bases are covered going forward and we know what we can do. We know how we can operate. We know we can run it from home. We know... Um, what the public expects and are willing to do and not do. So I think we've got to keep that as, as the basis for a business. But we are still looking to you know, expand and grow. We we have a number of developments that are under construction at the moment, so we'll be coming to the market. And we we don't see why they they won't be. Uh, very welcome than they would any other time. We're certainly the interest rates we're getting uh, early doors of inquiry levels. Then these new schemes seem to be. Um, it seems that the, the general public almost are quite content looking at a new block that's been built. It's brand new. No one's ever been lived in it, and there seems to be a feeling that that's almost safe and secure and, and wanted. Whereas a second-hand property, they are definitely suffering. So. We are in, again, say fortunate, but we've worked very hard to be in that position of having a number of new developments coming through in the city over the course of the next 12 months. So, you know, we're looking to, to both sell and rent through those developments and, and, and grow in that market. It's just for the next few months and, and this year, we've just got to sort of take baby steps to make sure that the basics are covered, that, that income covers outgoings, basically. But I certainly think that in our world, in 12 months, i.e. spring next year from when this started, I'm hoping you'll see a, the rental market, I think, will have returned to normal. I think prices that are currently quite competitive will be back where they were last this March. Um, the sales market, I think, will be a little bit tougher. Um, it's one thing to make a decision to rent somewhere for 12 months, and you're probably getting it a, you know, a few pounds cheaper than it was a couple of months ago and it's a great brand new apartment you live in the city centre and all is well and you might this time search somewhere that has got a balcony or outside space um, but if you're making a decision to buy at £300,000 in the city centre people seem to be just making sure that you know, they're taking a bit longer to be confident with that decision and I think that's human nature and psyche and that will that will take a little bit longer for that to come back into the market so It'll be interesting to see where the sales world is in 12 months' time. But the rental world, people, we're, we're, we're dealing with 
a young, dynamic audience. Most of our tenants are 25 to 35. Yeah, at that age, you're, you just want to get on with life, don't you? So, um, yeah, I think the rental world uh, will will adapt and will return to normal relatively quickly and the sales world will, will take a little longer. Let's certainly see um, what happens with uh, both of those uh, sides of the uh, the business, Anthony, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think given how sort of informative it's been discussing these issues on the air today, I think it would be great if at some point in the next year we could catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are getting on in that respect and how both sides of the business are starting to uh, recover because um, it's hugely important and um, we just don't know at the moment exactly what is going to uh, happen amid all the uncertainty and there is still a great deal of variables along the way as well the likelihood of perhaps a second wave so again it would be good I think from a listener's perspective just to catch up and see in the time between what exactly has changed yeah absolutely no and yeah the the, the company provides all of that data we have stacks and stacks of data of, of um the residential world so it's quite easy to compare year on year month on month that that kind of thing as we've just discussed we, we can already see in the last four weeks how productivity so although although applicant and viewing levels are are down sort of 75 percent productivity is massively up and volume wise not quite where we were last year by any stretch but, but certainly at a level that you know i would have accepted quite comfortably in march so yeah i'd love to come back in another six months time and say look this is what we thought would happen and uh, actually you know this, this is what has happened and, and see where we are there's, don't don't get me wrong I don't think we're out of the woods yet I think mm. there's a there's a furlough issue that, that's yet to be resolved in the, the general working population I, I, I can see trouble when you know those schemes end in July August September and where companies are in certain sectors, you know, you know, our our market, Manchester City Centre, we we have a huge hospitality retail environment. Um, you know, where where will those where will those industries be in, in three four months time? Um, professional services for the, the sort of higher end of the market. I think personally, I think that that, that market will be will probably be okay. But you know, marketing, advertising, all of those industries that that we we see buyers and tenants coming from. I, I don't think we're quite out of the woods yet, even though the COVID stats are getting better and getting to where where they're they're more manageable that, that the government want tailing off. We I think we've still got an, an economic issue ahead of us personally. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where where that that takes us over the next six months. It certainly will be, and it would be my pleasure, of course, to have you back on the programme later on down the line, Anthony, to discuss just that. Um, I've got to say, um, it's a shame we're just about out of time today, otherwise we could talk about it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. But um, do take care in the meantime, Anthony, and do stay safe with all still going on, because as exactly you've said, we are not out of the woods with this yet at all. Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much, Scott. That was Anthony Stankard speaking, the Managing Director of Reside Manchester. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany 
at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff. That's coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, <laughs> I guess, had one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like, uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more 
looked at it upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge when it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn song, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was, I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be 
be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, mm. I had the, the impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well and more than that whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them and there really must have been moments maybe there weren't but uh, let us know in that 66 competition the prolonged pressure on all of you you know the weight of a nation did it get to you? Oh not for me personally no I I think and I don't uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall, they were great, hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. There's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you in, too. It won't be too long to tell you. 
Uh, I was in a jersey or Channel Line jersey or jersey two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but I, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, but then again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. 
their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me: the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. The wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, 
you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team, the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organization. And I think that's. You completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go with the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.